0: Welcome to Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. Minnesota has some of the nation's worst achievement and opportunity gaps between whites and people of color. These disparities manifest themselves in lower high school graduation rates, lower homeownership rates, and less accumulation of wealth for non-white Minnesotans. This week on Dialogue Minnesota, University of Minnesota Professor of Sociology and Department Chair Doug Hartman discusses these racial inequities and the challenges society faces in trying to level the playing field. Professor Hartman, welcome back to Dialogue Minnesota.
1: Pleasure as always.
0: When we say that Minnesota has high achievement and opportunity gaps, what are we really talking about and what measurements are we using to assess these gaps?
1: What we're talking about is the distance or gap between how often we're talking about in racial terms how the white majority group is doing relative to people of color depending on the domain it could be measures of housing segregation academic achievement wage and income access to health care sociologists and demographers create rates to measure those things for all different groups of people and in minnesota what is the case white folks are significantly higher on those measures than people of color.
0: In what areas are the racial inequities most egregious?
1: I think education typically stands out in terms of graduation rates. There's a pretty big gap. You see some gaps with respect to health care disparities, so access to health care, quality health care, affordable housing, wages. Many of the standard kind of measures of quality of life, access to opportunities and resources. Oh, I should for sure mention in terms of the criminal justice system, disproportionate impact, negative impact for communities of color, especially African-American men. But those are some of the main areas, I think, in terms of where there's a political salience, a cultural attention, it tends to be education, criminal justice that have gotten a lot of attention recently.
0: Do these gaps mean that black Minnesotans are worse off than blacks in many other states?
1: Not in absolute terms, not at all. In fact, if we take the example of education, African Americans in Minnesota, and compare them to African Americans in other parts of the country, especially some of the southern states, you'd think African Americans are doing pretty well, just in terms of educational achievement, graduation rates, enrollments, things like that. The gap that looks bad for us is resulting not from how African-Americans are doing relative to other African-Americans in other parts of the country, but the gap between how African-Americans are doing relative to white Minnesotans. And it's kind of a statistical thing. What makes this gap look large is because Minnesota as a whole is a place that white Minnesotans are doing very well, quite well nationally in terms of graduation rates, in terms of income, mobility, housing. But it's almost like white Minnesotans are doing so well that they've kind of distanced themselves from people of color, African-Americans in particular, so that it's a big distance between the two groups. But it's not that African-Americans are doing worse relative to others of their similar status in the country. It's relative to other Minnesotans.
0: When did we begin to track racial disparities in Minnesota, and when did we take notice of these gaps?
1: I think we tracked disparities for a long time. I think that the attention to the gaps... I've been in Minnesota 20 years. I think it's in the last five to eight years we've really started to talk about that a lot. And I think the reason is because Minnesota, for many generations, had a pretty positive, optimistic view of itself and of the experience for people of color because we tended to focus on how people of color did relative to other parts of the country and we didn't pay so much attention to how they were doing relative to other Minnesotans. And so in the last decade or so, we've really seen a sea change in how we think about those rates and who we're comparing them to. And I think that's especially happened as we've had attention not only to the disadvantages or challenges that people of color face, but how their experiences compare to white Americans. So in the last decades, we've had a lot more attention not only to racial disadvantage, but also to racial privilege. The opportunities that are afforded some at the cost or the, the challenges that others experience. And so that's really, in a lot of ways, what the idea of the racial gap is trying to measure and call attention to is not just the absolute success or challenges of a group, but how groups stand in relationship to one another. One I was thought on that, sociologists have done this for a long time, um, we've always often thought about race as race relations, the relations between different groups. This is a variation on that. But I think as a country, uh, we often didn't think like that. We thought in more kind of absolute terms.
0: Professor Hartman, you mentioned one explanation for the education gap here in Minnesota, and that's the fact that white students outperform their counterparts in other states. Do we have any theories, though, as to what has caused other great racial inequities in our state? For example, the opportunity gap.
1: I think the two aren't disconnected. Like in the schools, I think there are some folks who would say the schools are oriented towards the culture, the background of white Americans. And so it's really set up for their success, but the curriculum or the teaching styles or the institutions themselves don't have the systems or the resources to really speak to folks with different backgrounds, different needs, different cultural understandings. So that's one thing. When we think about housing, or like so income and wealth, I think we have big wealth gaps in this state. I think it's even a little more just the way that historical advantages accrue over time. So that, you know, you think about the great housing programs, the GI Bill, the other Sally Mae loan programs of the 50s and 60s that enabled the growth of suburbs, enabled the growth of mass home ownership. Those were really racialized programs that were accessible far more to white americans than americans of color and in a certain sense what we're seeing in the housing context and the wealth context is what happens from one generation to the other when one family or group of families is able to buy a house and make an investment that becomes resources and um support for generations to come and other groups aren't open to having that opportunity to invest. And taking it one step further, um, we know now that Minnesota was the place that had racial covenants um, in place so that housing in some neighborhoods and entire communities wasn't just there wasn't loans. Those houses weren't even available to people of color. Um, My point on this about the gaps is that that is creating huge opportunities and privileges for the children of the parents who had access to those housing markets. And it's not just about housing them, but about the accumulation of wealth that weren't, in fact, available for people of different racial backgrounds.
0: We're talking with Doug Hartman, a professor and chair of the sociology department at the University of Minnesota. We're talking about racial inequality in Minnesota and the state's achievement and opportunity gaps that are among the highest in the nation. A study by Professor Samuel Myers, Jr. at the University of Minnesota found that the 50 largest banks in the Twin Cities disproportionately reject the loan applications of minorities. And a project in Hennepin County titled Mapping Prejudice has uncovered 30,000 racial covenant deeds, you mentioned that, which historically barred blacks from buying property in designated white neighborhoods. How should the state, especially the Twin Cities metro area, reconcile these wrongs.
1: Well, I think the first step is acknowledging that they are wrong, admitting acknowledging this legacies, which is actually a pretty important step. I think a lot of people are quite surprised to learn of these things, aren't necessarily even willing to believe it sometimes. So, setting that historical record straight is important and Some of the contemporary record, too, Sam Meyer's research on loan policies, that's pretty contemporary. And we still have a lot of folks who don't necessarily believe the research evidence that shows these disparate patterns. Addressing them more than just recognizing them is a bigger challenge. I think one of the challenges we have as a society is recognizing that just getting rid of bad policies and laws doesn't eliminate, much less erase, the inequities that they have produced, and um, there's a real difference between just getting rid of those laws versus taking positive, proactive action to help bring folks who've been negatively impacted by laws and policies not only to a level playing field, but to give them the resources and support that they would need to really make up for those gaps.
0: What is being done currently in the state of Minnesota to address the achievement and opportunity gaps?
1: Well, I think there's a lot of debates about that. And like if we're talking about education as one of the areas, is it left to the locales or the cities that have these gaps in larger populations? Is there statewide solutions? What's the state's role in distributing or redistributing resources and opportunities? I'm actually not sure that we have very many proactive policy solutions to the problems right now. I think right now the bigger challenge is just kind of acknowledging that these gaps exist and that they're the product not only of kind of the challenging circumstances that communities of color find themselves in, but also connected with the great privileges and opportunities that many white Minnesotans have. I actually think one of the problems that we have in Minnesota is that we like to think of ourselves as a pretty open, progressive place. And I think in a lot of ways we have a culture that is like that, but we don't necessarily have policies that create institutional opportunities or resources to really live up to that for the people that aren't living at the same level that everybody else is.
0: Have we seen any success stories in other states to try and level the playing field?
1: Well, I mean, in education, you know, you have when we kind of create statewide policies that put resources into neighborhoods and communities that are historically discriminated against or disadvantaged. I think those kind of programs work. Instead of thinking about other communities, I'd put it in a bigger historical context. I think after the civil rights movement, there was a whole set of policies that were imagined and created about housing and Head Start and educational programs that were designed to provide opportunities, new kinds of opportunities and support for people of color, especially African Americans at that time. But I think in the years since, we've turned back many of those programs, or we've seen how those came to be seen as kind of reverse racism. And in fact, when a lot of them, the whole point was to target the inequalities that we see. Now, to come back to the present, I'd say to me the policies that are most important would be the ones that not only kind of acknowledge and get rid of barriers, but take more proactive steps to provide resources and support to communities of color who are struggling with the gaps that we can see in our communities today.
0: Has there been any success in trying to ameliorate some of the racial disparity gaps we've seen in Minnesota in recent years? Are there any success stories to cite?
1: I think we have a lot of programs going on in Minnesota. I don't know that we're doing a great job of targeting the gaps. I'm not the kind of scholar who's as focused on one set of programs or another. It's probably something better to ask some other people about who are really policy scholars. I'm not saying that there isn't some successes, but my kind of orientation to this is at the big level kind of in terms of whole communities, whole cities, our state as a whole. And I haven't seen a tremendous amount of progress on those gaps in the last few years.
0: There has been a lot of discussion about possible ways to level the playing field and deal with some of these opportunity and educational gaps. There's been discussion of perhaps paying reparations to Native Americans or African Americans. Are some of the issues we're looking at, though, even beyond that kind of fix? It seems like a lot of the disparities are based upon entrenched institutions. How do we address that? That's almost a daunting uh, challenge.
1: I mean, to me, it's interesting to think about reparations, especially given how much passionate opposition they tend to promote in the culture. The reason I think it's interesting and challenging, because I think most of the time the payments that we're talking about are pretty minimal, like symbolic token kind of payments, that don't really get to the deep institutional structural problems that you're alluding to. And I, I think that is the real problem, is that we live in a society that has institutions that have all kinds of inequalities built into them that serve people who are already pretty privileged very well, but aren't necessarily designed to serve those who really are starting at different places or different points. Um, A society that has tremendous economic inequalities that are passed on from generation to generation. And, you know, once that happens, it's not like we have a tax structure or a social system that is redistributing that wealth. So it's kind of one of those things, talking about it like this, it's, I think, easy to analyze the problem and to see the depth of the inequities that we have in society and how pervasive they are, but it really is hard to think about solutions that are more than kind of short-term, symbolic, or kind of at an individual level. and. Kind of, too, because we think so much at an individual level. We're not really usually thinking about policies that would radically restructure um, our institutions and society.
0: In the 1960s and into the mid-1970s, one way where... Local school systems attempted to help reconcile the uh, inequalities between various public schools, depending upon the neighborhood they were in, was to provide busing that would balance the racial composition of various schools throughout the particular system. Those efforts, though, seem to have gone by the wayside. There's not a lot of talk about busing anymore. And, of course, there was great resistance to busing at that time. A lot of uh, people referred to it as forced busing. Is this an area where we have failed? We're actually moving backward? It, It seems like there might have been more integration in schools in the 60s and 70s than we're seeing today.
1: Yeah, I think I'd probably agree with that. I think what's accentuated that problem and contributed to some kinds of resegregation or the collapse of integration is not only the failure of busing, but unfortunately, in complicated ways, the rise of charter schools and magnet schools, which often have in recent years, especially in Minnesota, been promoted by people from different racial and ethnic backgrounds, not white ethnic and racial backgrounds. But those are tricky because they, one, often have a pretty homogeneous character. It's often composed of students and parents and families that are opting out of the public schools or of the larger collective communal organizations, many times for good reason, but they are pulling out of the broader integrated context and then also taking resources with them. So I think schools are a really challenging place to think about this, and I say that at the same time, recognizing that some of those larger, more integrated schools and school districts. Part of the reason why you see people pulling out of those is they haven't served folks well, including students of color.
0: We hear a lot of talk about the concept of privilege, and you've been speaking to it throughout our interview today, particularly white privilege and male privilege. Schools are trying now to help their students understand the concept of privilege, and uh, even some larger corporations have diversity training where uh, looking at privilege is part of that curriculum. Do we need to do more of this?
1: I think I would probably say yes. Maybe it's not even probably, I know I would say yes. We have to understand, I think, how inequalities are never kind of neutral and impacting one group only. But if you have somebody who's disadvantaged, that logically and necessarily implies somebody else, some other group has advantages and privileges relative to those disadvantages. That's to me what privilege is about. You don't have privilege without having disadvantage somewhere else and as a society we need to acknowledge that. I would say though I think that too often maybe we invest in programs that want to acknowledge or talk about privilege or talk even in a different way about diversity but talking about that is very different from new policies or practices or programs that really try to create a more level playing field, that try to create equity within institutions and across communities. And what's really tough about the concept of privilege as it relates to programs and policies is that if you really acknowledge the privileges of some and the disadvantages of others. Equity means some kind of redistribution or renegotiation of how we do business and how we distribute resources. And what I tend to see, especially in my classes, is that students can kind of understand the move from talking about just inequalities to talking about privileges, but it starts to be harder to talk about policies that really require people who are privileged to rethink their privilege and maybe be willing to give a little bit of that up or to create policies that create different kinds of opportunities, new opportunities, new advantages or privileges for others. So I think in a certain sense there's two challenges here. One is the concept of privilege itself and recognizing that, acknowledging that, grappling with that. But then the second is once we acknowledge that, What do we do about it? And I think that policy piece is really hard for all of us to really come to terms with because it requires some fundamental rethinking, not only of the concept, but of how we allocate things.
0: We're talking with Doug Hartman, a professor and chair of the sociology department at the University of Minnesota. We're talking about racial inequality in Minnesota and the state's achievement and opportunity gaps that are among the highest in the nation. This is such a complex issue. How quickly should we expect the gaps to narrow? What is a realistic timeline to solve this problem, or is there a realistic timeline?
1: If you ask people that in the 60s, I'm curious what they would have said. 20 years, 30 years? um, Did they think it would be solved by the 80s or the 90s? And we're now 50 or 60 years out. Change is slow. I think privilege and power, people who have benefits, are slow and reluctant to give those up. Society as a whole is, has a really difficult time of making new policies that make those kind of changes. I'm not sure what a reasonable time frame is. One thing I would say as a sociologist, thinking about this in a broader historical way, that when those kind of dramatic changes happen, it often comes when there's kind of conflict, and intense conflict that forces institutions to change. And we've had some moments of that in the past. We're living through some right now. But in a certain sense, we've got conflict not only of people pushing for change in a positive or forward-looking way. We've also got folks who are trying to push against change and maintain a certain kind of status quo and vision of society that they've long become used to. So that's a pretty uncomfortable, pretty polarized kind of context we're talking about. I think we have that right now. And exactly how that plays out, I don't know.
0: Is there additional research that needs to be done to help us better understand the problem of racial inequities and uh, also to help us understand what we can do to try to address the issue?
1: Well, on the one hand, I think there's a pretty good amount of research both in Minnesota and more broadly, that documents the disparities that we have, that documents gaps and inequalities. I'm not sure that everybody is aware of that knowledge, of that information and data, or that accepts it and believes it. So that's kind of one big set of questions is whether we see the problems in the same way or see them even as problems. So there's something that needs to be done there. I'd say especially in as you and I are talking and acknowledging my own limitations and blind spots, I think we don't have full understandings of the kind of policies and programs that are kind of doable and needed to address the inequalities. And some of that might be we don't have the right programs. Some of it, we don't have programs that are politically palpable or that people are accepting of. If I think about where you know, scholarship and research might come in and be more assertive is in helping to think about new alternatives, new ways to not just understand these problems, but to approach them. I still think there's a lot of resistance in our society right now to not only the programs, but even to acknowledging or accepting the research that, to me, is pretty clear that documents um, these inequalities and gaps. And So that starts to mean, to me in a sense, the problem is not just research and information, it's also about politics and perceptions and Americans and Minnesotans' very different views of what's good about our communities and where the problems lie.
0: Following the election of Barack Obama in 2008 and his re-election in 2012, we heard a lot of talk about America perhaps becoming a post-racial society. We know that's not true, but to some extent, was the election of Barack Obama the nation's first African-American president perhaps a moment where we became more complacent, thinking that if we can have an African-American president, there really isn't an issue with racial inequality anymore?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think some of us became more complacent and kind of thought we had done enough. Others thought That was kind of crazy, and this is exactly the moment where more needed to be done. And another set of people in society, I think, had a very different reaction than both of those and were actually quite upset and dismayed about the social changes that elected an African-American man president. And I think a lot of the resentments and the denial and the bigotries that we see in society, they might have been kind of under the surface, but really got accentuated actually with the election of Barack Obama. And so I kind of see not only complacency in some segments of society, but also resentment and a sense of threat and of change happening too fast that I think is part of what we're living with right now.
0: Doug Hartman is a professor and chair of the Sociology Department at the University of Minnesota. Professor Hartman, thanks so much for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota.
1: I appreciate it. I felt like it was a a tough conversation to go through, and uh, I hope folks find it useful.
0: Dialogue Minnesota. Conversations about the issues that matter to you. House Democrats have opened up an impeachment inquiry into President Trump. Next week on Dialogue Minnesota a look at the history of presidential impeachment and how the process may play out in the weeks and months ahead. I'm Jim Dubois. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. See you next time.